Sorry, there's a sound downstairs. I don't know if that's was, if you guys heard. I was like, that was a really good awkward silence. It was one of the best, yeah. <laughs> Going for it. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward Silence. Silences. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Awkward Silences. We are here today with Caitlin Burgoyne, and she is a growth strategist and trainer. She helps teams be more customer-centric and get to know their customers and users more. And today we're going to talk about marketing, something near and dear to my heart, and how marketers can get better access to their customers and the insights that they hold uh, to make better marketing and business decisions with that qualitative data. So thanks so much for being here, Caitlin. Thank you so much. This is something that I'm super passionate about. So given the opportunity to chat about it is, is awesome. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Awesome. So um, we were talking a little bit before and you said something that really jumped out at me that strikes me as true in life, which is that marketers don't get to talk to customers enough. Tell us about that. So um, in my experience working, you know, having my own marketing agency and working with clients um, and then also working with, with clients as a consultant uh, who need help with their growth, oftentimes the marketers are kept separate from customers. So it's kind of expected that marketers are going to figure out the right messaging and the right strategy and come up with those really like on point personas. But they're supposed to do all of that just kind of by observing customers or by sitting in on sales calls. And in my experience, it's really in having conversations with customers that marketers can develop the most empathy and they need a chance to do that more, but are often um, not given that opportunity. And is the advantage that um, you know, there's benefit in simply being part of that conversation or is it that marketers are asking different kinds of questions than other folks might ask? I think it's both. I mean, definitely marketers have enough, the, the things that we need to know um, are, are different than what um, maybe a salesperson or customer success needs to know. And they're different types of conversations. Um, talk, typically when a customer is talking to somebody in sales, they're in the process of getting sold to and they might be more closed-lipped about certain things. They're not going to be as frank and open with sharing um, certain insights. And then when they're talking to the customer success team, maybe they're trying to troubleshoot an issue and that's what they want to get done. They're in no like, mood to chit-chat. So I find that um, when given the opportunity, marketers just have different questions that we need answers to. We really need to understand a customer's buying journey. We need to understand their decision-making process. Um, we need to understand what their buying criteria is, what objections they might have, and what they're trying to get done in life. I really love it when marketers have the opportunity to have these discovery calls with no aim other than to learn. And when done um, strategically and when done with the right framework, those conversations can yield incredible insights that really make your customers feel like you've read their mind. And that's kind of the work that I do these days is teaching people how to, how to gather those insights in a way that's really thoughtful. There's, it feels like within like product and design worlds, there's been a little bit of a awakening in terms of the value of talking to customers directly and, and doing that qualitative discovery. Um, do you have any ideas in terms of like why that hasn't happened on the marketing side or why it's still a little bit more of an uphill battle and people need to come in and, and kind of be convinced or trained on the value of it? 
I think there's a couple of reasons. I think that one is that in if you look at the way that a lot of um, companies work, they will hire an agency, but yet they'll have their own team of internal marketers. And there's always sort of like a turf war between the team of internal marketers and the agencies. And the internal marketers, the thing that they can hold on to, the thing that's really meaningful is that they're supposed to have this really good understanding of the customer that they can then feed to the advertising agency or the um, marketing agency. And that's their role. And in holding on to that role, they might be a bit resistant to invest in the agencies doing any marketing research and that, you know, in actually going on doing um, qualitative research. Um, and then when people from agency get hired by startups, which happens a lot, you know, startups are sexy and people in agency want to go and work directly with the company and actually be hands-on and like a product-driven company, they bring some of that um, historical baggage with them, that expectation that, um, that they're supposed to figure it out with the information that's available because in the past they haven't been encouraged or given access to being able to do more of that uh, conversational research. Um, and typically, you know, um, chatting with the, my friends who are agency owners now, I was an agency owner years ago, like clients just don't want to pay for that. They think it's an extra line item on the invoice and they want to avoid it. And so I know a lot of agencies that even if they want to be doing more qualitative research, they don't aren't given the budget for it. So they end up doing it themselves, like out of pocket. And then when those marketers come over into these companies and get hired on product teams and um, startup teams, they kind of bring some of that way of working with them because it's what they knew and it's what they expect. So I'd say that that's part of it. Um, I think another part of it is that a lot of teams, a lot of leaders are very hesitant to let anybody talk to customers who don't need to. <laughs> So they think that talking to customers could potentially lose the customers. And so it's really a needs, needs basis of who gets to talk to those customers. That's been my experience when working with founders. They, they're really nervous about letting anybody who isn't sales, um, who isn't customer success, have those conversations. It's like they, they're afraid of what they'll learn or they're afraid of potentially alienating or irritating a customer. Uh, that's such a bummer. Like, I'm sure it's true in some industries, but like, at least in my experience, the, the customers you talk to the most are always the ones who end up like loving you the most. Mm -hmm. And so um, it is a shame that, that people still have that fear, but it definitely makes sense. I think it's true in B2B companies a lot too, where it's like there are these huge ACB values attached to different accounts and, you know, every, everything's a liability, right? But I think you're right. It's um, obviously you don't want to be spamming your customers with requests and requests and requests. Um, but if you're smart about it and maintain a, you know, CRM such as Research Hub, um, you can kind of track those those relationships. It's it's really funny. Um, in Seth Godin's new book, he talks about um, he talks about when you when people don't behave the way you expect them to, look for the angry bear. It's hard for people to dream of the future or to make decisions from a rational place when they're afraid of getting eaten. And I think that that's part of the startup mindset is that every day you're kind of afraid of getting eaten. And so it's when it comes to kind of the culture and how things we've always done it this way here, um, that often comes from this place where you're this scrappy company in the beginning, working really hard to, to get things off the ground. And some of those behaviors and those anxieties, um, I think, stick with the company even as they grow. Um, 
that's been my experience. But the, like to your point, um, what's fascinating is the first time that that a company actually lets those marketers go out and have those conversations. The insights that they generate are so incredible that they're usually fairly quickly convinced that this is the good thing and they should be doing it more. Uh, but it's really just that resistance and that anxiety that holds some of these companies back. Yeah, the, the crazy thing is, is that, right, like marketers are having conversations with customers regardless, right? Like when you are deciding what to put in an ad or like how to write the copy in an email, like it's not a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, qualitative conversation, um, but you're talking to your users at scale. And so, you know, being afraid of letting them talk to one person is like, you know, when you think about it from that perspective, it seems a little crazy. Um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I think part of it is the fear. Um, and part of it is, again, going back to that, well, we haven't done it that way historically. Um, and, you know, marketers, oftentimes they, because they have access to so much quantitative data, um, and because they are engaging with customers online at a pretty rapid pace often, um, it's perceived, oh, that's enough. We've got enough. We understand the customers. So I'd say that there's a lot of marketers themselves that feel as though they've got all the insights that they need. And maybe they've done customer research in the past or they've run surveys or they've had conversations and had a hard time making sense of the qualitative data um, and therefore thought, okay, well, that's not a fast and efficient way to get information. I see that as well. And that's why I think it's really important for people to learn how to do qualitative research and not just assume that talking to people is easy because the talking part, it can be easy. Um, but if you don't go into it with the a good understanding of what the right questions are to ask, and then a um, plan for how you're going to analyze what you learn and kind of look at all that qualitative, um, all of those interviews as one data set. Um, it can be easy to kind of get confused because you might hear mixed messages coming from your customers. You might bias those interviews by kind of getting them to say the things you want them to say anyway. So what the content of those conversations matters. And that's one thing that I think a lot of people don't know how to do well. What are, um, what are some of your tips? Obviously, you know, books have been written on this, but if we're trying to get kind of a new cohort of people out there talking to customers and as importantly, getting some actual signal from that noise, what are some of the key things to get started doing some meaningful, you know, customer interviews? Well, there's two big things to start with. Um, one is to focus on understanding what the customer done in the past and um, what their past behaviors are. Because when you have conversations that are aspirational, um, people are really bad at knowing what they're going to do in the future. And so really getting customers and having this conversation and kind of like pulling out of them the behaviors that led to them making certain decisions and kind of like getting them to take you on a bit of a journey as to how they make decisions, that can be really, really insightful. But asking them questions about, you know, if you saw this campaign, would you like it? Or what would you think of this? Like that's, that can be helpful, um, but it can also lead you astray. So I'd say, you know, the kind of joke I say is that if you were to ask me, you know, what I'm going to do in the next month to, to get in shape, I'm going to say, oh, I'm going to go to the gym three times a week and I'm going to eat salad for lunch. And it's like, okay, well, what did you do in the last month? And it's like, oh, I ate a hundred hamburgers. <laughs> so what people have done is far more um, indicative of what they'll do in the future. And so it's important for people when they have those conversations to kind of like try to focus on understanding past behavior versus using them to try to predict some type of future behavior because they can really throw you off. And if you use them that way and then the 
people react differently. Like, let's say you do a bunch of interviews and you ask people, what would you think of this? What would you think of this? And you put that campaign out and it fizzles, then you might think, oh, people don't know what they want. And that's true. <laughs> people don't know what they want, but they do know, they can explain to you um, why they make the decisions that they make if you pull that information out of them. And so I find that um, that's a really good tool is just starting by, um, by focusing on past behavior and kind of trying to get to the emotions that led to them making certain decisions. And the other piece of advice is, I mean, this is easier when you're talking to your existing customers, but, you know, talk to people who have the problem that you solve. Because sometimes when people are thinking about launching a new feature or um, uh, launching a new product even, they'll go out and they'll talk to a lot of different people, people who may not be solving that problem, who may not have a need for that solution, um, and they don't really qualify them first. And that can kind of throw them off as well. Got it. Um, so get, get your data from the people who have the answers you seek um, and then ask them about things that they have actually, you know, done in the past. And I love the emphasis on the emotion behind it, right? So important to marketing is uh, how do you emote in people the solution to their problem? And so, um, you know, speaking that language back to them in terms that they're using and feeling is so, so powerful. Um, so I love those tips. Absolutely. One of the, um, one of the frameworks that I use a lot when doing customer interviews is known as um, jobs to be done. And it's like, it's a tool called the switch interview. And the idea behind the switch interview, which is really handy for marketers is you basically interview somebody and you want to know what made them switch from their old solution to your, to your current solution. So like you want to kind of like, explore that journey, explore the switch. And when you're doing that, they, one of the things I like about this framework is they get you to kind of listen for what they call the emotional forces. And so there's the forces that will make somebody um, actually make a switch. It'll push them towards uh, making a change. And that's the push of their current situation. So that can often be described as the pain. It's like, what sucks about right now that would make me start looking for something else? And then there is the pull of the new solution. So it's like the, the features and the benefits and the stuff that's sexy about it and what they want to achieve. And one of the things that I say sometimes is like, if there's not a push, no amount of pull matters. Like we might be able to look at, you know, a Ferrari and think, oh, that's so beautiful. And like, what a nice vehicle. But if there's nothing pushing us in our life, there's no emotional friction or pain that is driving us to change our current situation, we won't change. And then there's also emotions that stop people from, from making changes. And that would be anxiety, you know, anxiety with the new solution. Will it work the way they say it will work? What will people think if they see me using this thing? What will my boss think? Will they think that I, you know, that I need this tool? All sorts of anxieties come along with making a switch. And then there's the inertia or the habit of your current solution. It's like, well, I've always done it this way. Or if we use that tool, I'd have to get a different, you know, project management solution. And like, I, I, I'm in the habit of using this one. I don't know if I want to make a change. And so when I do interviews, I typically will try to interview people who have recently made a switch to either the product that I'm uh, trying to market, or if it's a new product coming to market, they're using something that would be considered a competitor. And then I interview them to try to understand all of the trigger points and decisions that happen along that switch journey. But those are the four things that I'm listening for, the push and the pull of what makes them choose a new thing 
and or the anxieties and the habits that stop them from making a switch. And from a marketer's perspective, that's like massive insight because you're understanding what channels they're looking in, you're understanding who they're looking to for um, recommendations, tons of good stuff there for marketers. Yeah, and that seems obviously hugely valuable for, you know, a kind of new product offering within your product or for acquisition to your, you know, company in the first place. Or can you do, or do you have different frameworks for getting insight in terms of retention and increasing lifetime value or things like that further down in the customer journey? Well, that usually comes down to, again, like looking at, um, like figuring out who would be the right person to talk to about retention. Well, it's probably somebody who just left and understanding why they left, understanding the friction that led to them leaving. There was some type of friction that they experienced, whether it was something that you can control or not, um, that happened that led to them leave. And then the satisfaction with the current solution. So that's kind of, it's a different style of interview, but you're still listening for those same challenges you're still listening to those same kind of emotional triggers but the questions that you ask will be different they'll be less focused on their buying journey because because um, at this point they've bought and what you're trying to understand is what stopped them from buying what made them leave and so understanding the buying journey can be very helpful but then you also want to spend a good amount of time understanding their experience with the product and kind of the motivating factors that would have made them leave tricky part for a lot of teams is that Oftentimes, once somebody's left your product, they're not as keen to, to chat with you. So finding people that are willing to give you their time and talk about that, whether they're being compensated or incentivized in some way or not, can be a little trickier, um, but hugely valuable for the ones that you do get to talk with. Um, as a, as a non-marketer, but somebody who thinks about qualitative research a decent amount, is there almost even like a simpler piece of this of just by being out there and talking to users who are in this problem space that you, you know, your product or service plays in that you like absorb and start to use like the actual language and like communicate these things in, in the same terms that they do. Like, to, like, you know, I'm like the thing that comes to mind is like that 30 rock Steve Buscemi, like, how do you do fellow kids? And you're like, just coming across as like a narc type of thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. Is there like, just like a benefit of just, you know, knowing how to speak about it in a way that feels like authentic and real to users and doesn't come across as like, you know, corporate-y or, or cold. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I do is I have, um, I use this little tool. Um, I'm just gonna have to look and see what the name of it is. But basically, if I see customers talking about, if you know, if I'm representing a client, I see them talking about that product, um, or a competitor's product, and I think that it's interesting the way they phrase something, I'll, I'll snap it and I'll save it to this archive. And it's like the voice of the customer archive. And if I'm doing customer interviews, I'll have those transcribed. And as I'll read through them, I'll find things that I call them swipeable copy. So it's like, oh my goodness, the way that they said that is so good. That's the way they would say it in real life. And using the voice of your customer, using their own words is incredibly compelling for marketing. You know, a lot of marketers try to sound slick or clever, but really it's the words that your own customers are already using to describe their their emotional challenges and their and their desired outcomes that are the, going to be the most compelling to use in, in your marketing materials. Cool. Um, another non-marketer, dumb question maybe, uh, is like personas, right? I've worked at a bunch of companies. You have all these user personas, customer personas, whatever you want to call them. Um, are people really creating those like without doing qualitative research and just looking at like quantitative trends or is that being done by the agency or... I yes, guess. they're definitely doing them without, it's like, they're based on, oftentimes they're based on internal kind of assumptions. 
And you see it a lot. And people think, oh, we did that exercise. We've got our personas done. And oftentimes I'll see a company whose personas are very much focused on demographic information. And um, one of the one of the kind of like teachings from from jobs to be done is like it's people don't buy because they're a 23 year old male who has two dogs and <laughs> that degree in marketing. Like that's that's not the reason they buy. There's there might be some correlation in terms of who the, the, your customer segments are, but the demographic stuff isn't really what matters. Um, it can be helpful in figuring out you know what media to buy or where to try to show up, but really people buy because they have things they need to get done. They have outcomes that they're trying to achieve. They have pains that they want to overcome. And when um, when I work with uh, companies to put together a persona, it's a persona that's kind of driven by figuring out what are the jobs they're trying to get done. So what are the actual functional jobs they're trying to get done? That's stuff like, you know, get from here to there. But what are also the um, social things? Like how are they wanting to be perceived by others when they're, and why would that make them buy your thing? And how do they want to feel about themselves or how, like what, how do they want this to affect them personally? So I kind of get people to break those down beyond the typical demographic information and really just to think about all of the, the thought process that a customer has and what they're trying to achieve with their, with your product. And when people start thinking about it from that perspective, it really changes the way that um, that they market their that they market their product, and also that they um, think about what the right solution could be. Yeah, I always when I've built personas in the past, and um, you kind of you know give them a gender, you give them a name, you give them uh, you know maybe they have a family or you know interests and things like that, and it's interesting, right? It's like you sort of need this like shell to put these behaviors in, but then you feel like you're just creating this massive stereotype that's not really mm-hmm. good for. So I, I love have see, I'm loving to see the kind of transition to focusing more on on the behaviors that are that are certainly more relevant to them and, and to your business, um, which also lends themselves to being used in more valuable ways, right? Well, absolutely. There's always so many different emotional things driving us that aren't just the core function of using a product, and I love when. Um, when people build personas based on those emotional drivers, as opposed to just that demographic or even like uh, firmographic stuff. Like a lot of people's personas are, we go after companies of this size with this many employees doing this kind of revenue in this vertical. And it's like, well, that's great. Like you just described a particular type of company, but you didn't explain at all how they get benefit from your product or what they're trying to achieve or why you should matter to them. <laughs> so while you might want to, to target that company, you haven't explained why, why they should even know that you exist. And um, one of the ways that I kind of get people to prioritize their um, projects when we look at putting together growth plans is the first thing I have them do is I have them kind of map out all their different projects on um, a matrix and the one line is the value that that project would create for their customer and the other line is the number of customers that would get value and it really kind of forces them to before they think about oh how is this campaign or idea going to benefit us to put it to kind of like root it back in customer empathy and think about well how does this actually create value for our customers and what happens is a lot of people i'll use a kind of like post-it note um kind of ideation session. And a lot of people kind of come up with all of their ideas. They're all pumped and they've got all these ideas. And then I get them to map them on this matrix and they realize that a ton of their ideas don't actually create any value for their customers. It's like, oh, this is why our, this is why our marketing isn't working. <laughs> it's very selfish. 
<laughs> so right. that's one of those exercises um, that really kind of gets people to open their eyes. But to know that, you need to know your customers. And if you're not talking to them, you, you'll have a hard time really knowing what they need. How do you get, do you face resistance? And if so, how do you get companies to kind of say, this qualitative data of talking to three or five or 10 people is sufficient and valid enough that I should have confidence in what you're telling me? Um, how do you uh, work with, with companies and marketers to bridge that gap if there is one? It, it can be tough. Um, the thing is, again, it comes back to like, what are, the, what are their jobs to be done? And oftentimes by the time people are willing to invest in that qualitative research, it's because they've made a bunch of mistakes and been humbled by it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the companies that I go to the first time I'm trying to present this, if they're kind of like still in the startup mode, still trying to like either launch a product or have recently launched one, but haven't really fallen on their face yet, they're unlikely to do it. And it's like, okay, well, I'll come back to them later when, when I know that when things are getting tougher and then they're going to be more likely to be open to this conversation because until they felt that push of doing the wrong thing, why would they need to talk to customers? Right. Um, it's one of the kind of ironic things that there's so much of the lean startup training that a lot of early stage companies go through. They're not like they're listening to the theory, but they don't really live it because they haven't made the mistake yet. And then it's when they've made the mistake that they go, oh, <laughs> that's why we were supposed to do it that way. <laughs> cool. So I think it's somewhat similar in the product and design world in the sense of without qualitative research, early on, you might be able to get a decent amount of it right just through like intuition and some luck and being smart, thoughtful people. Um, but when you get to a certain point where you need your execution to be above, you know, an even higher bar as you kind of need to continue to grow or you're getting, um, you know, uh, more competitive in terms of like what you need to win on and in, in terms of like what your product can do and stuff like that's where like the mistakes start to become fatal. You know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. obviously that you can get it wrong earlier too. I'm not trying to like downplay that, but uh, to your point about like not feeling the pain until you make the mistakes, it's like, it can be tough because if you have smart people focus on a problem, you know, using their own intuition, like sometimes you can get it mostly right. And, and the mistakes aren't that obvious until, you know, the bar gets raised and the stakes are a little bit higher. And, and then it becomes, you know, too late to build those muscles when you really need them. Absolutely. I mean, Bill Gates, I think he said, success is a terrible teacher. It fools uh, smart people into thinking they can't lose. And I think that that's part of it too. You know, companies that have a culture where things have all been going well, and then things stop going well, or the things that they're, they're not growing at the clip that they expect to. Um, when they've been successful in the past, they may not immediately think, okay, we need to kind of like recalibrate here and we need to think about doing this from a more customer-centric place um, because they've never done it that way and they were successful regardless. Um, so that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, it's the reality, right, is like this stuff is hard. Like to, to have a successful business, to have a great marketing function is hard, right? And so like anything you can do to stack the deck in your favor, which I would, you know, unequivocally say qualitative research is going to do that at a pretty low cost, um, mm -hmm probably a net positive since it's going to like help you prevent <laughs> mistakes and things like that. Um, it just, it just seems worth it. Like makes me think of the, uh, I'm going to probably get it wrong, but like the tree quote in terms of like the best time to plant a tree was 30 years ago. Like the second best time is today. And it's like, even if you did do all that stuff and you built something and, it's, and you learned it's wrong now, like you better off pulling the plug on it now than waiting another two weeks. You know what I mean? Like it would have been great to have learned it before you built it. Um, but if you didn't and you made that mistake, like it, it still is the right time to recognize it and go back and try to, and try to course correct. Like, leaving it out there and kind of turning a blind eye is not going to make it any better. Absolutely. And that kind of goes back to that angry bear thing. It's like people don't act rationally when they're scared. 
and building a company can be very scary. And so I think that that's kind of part of what, when it comes to more people not doing that qualitative research, I think that that explains a little bit of it, is that people are scared and they're scared of changing um, and embracing a new kind of practice that, that they're unfamiliar with and they're scared of being proven wrong. And so it's, it's interesting. And that's why a lot of the, um, a lot of my work now is just on raising awareness to how much value this can bring to your growth. Um, a lot, it's, and it sounds obvious though. And this is the thing, like I say this all the time. I make this joke. It's like, um, I picture myself kind of like standing on stage and like pitching about this and being like, <laughs> you know, who, who here has ever tried to lose weight and probably like every hand in the room is going to go up. And, you know, what if I told you that I had the perfect solution to weight loss? You know, it's this like $300 billion industry and, I, I know what the answer is. And like, you know, people will be on the edge of their seat and it's like, the answer is diet and exercise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it can be simple, but it doesn't make it easy. And I think that's where people struggle with the qualitative research is that it sounds simple enough, but then to actually create that kind of like, whether you call the voice of the customer program or feedback loop or whatever you want to call it. And to, make the time for people to do that, to give them the time and not expect it to happen off the side of their desk um, and to actually use it to make decisions versus um, just to validate things you already want to do um, is it's a real culture change for a lot of people. Totally. I always, I always use the exercise kind of behavior change metaphor as well. Cause it's like, in addition to it, like kind of being obvious the way you just laid it out, it's, it's also like a matter of what's the alternative and the alternative mm -hmm. of sitting on my couch, eating junk food, can look pretty appealing sometimes to, you know, a run in a salad. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, I think it's similar for, you know, whether it's product or market, whatever, it's like, I can trust my own intuition and build the thing that I think is right and like stick to my gut and move quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, you know, that can be appealing if you've worked that way historically and that's what you're used to having to change to, you know, build in time to talk to folks and th synthesize the output of that is, you know, it's a big change. It's not, it's not a trivial thing. Absolutely. And like, I think one of the, when I talk about this, sometimes I get like clap back of people being like, well, Henry Ford said that if people would have asked what to build, he would have, they would have said faster horses. And I, A, that's kind of, I always find that funny for two reasons is one that he didn't actually say that. <laughs> that quote is misattributed. Like it's something he never said. And B, when I was running my startup, I said it too, because when you're trying to move really, really fast and you're looking for an excuse as an intelligent person, not to, you know, not to have to slow down and to hope that what you're coming up with is right, you'll pull out quotes like that and they'll make you feel validated <laughs> in yeah. that you're doing the right thing or that you're trying to do the right thing. And so, yeah, I, I find that funny. That's like um, uh, probably a topic for a whole other episode, but when you think about using your qualitative data to make good conclusions, you know, you're talking about like kind of confirmation bias or searching for, you know, information that confirms what you already think and that um, PSA is not the right way to do qualitative <laughs> research. Um, I'm curious, you're talking about, you know, you've worked with so many companies, right? Teaching some of these methods and frameworks for, um, you know, talking, talking to customers and getting insight from them. What are some of the good things you've seen happen in organizations that have embraced some of these? Methods? Well, it's game changing. Like it's a, like, like it, uh, it's like, you know, from a, um, you know, 
you know, outcomes perspective, I've seen companies uh, double and triple the, their leads or their close rate just from changing their messaging based on what they've learned by talking to customers. Um, I've seen teams, you know, in my most recent workshop that I ran, I saw a team that has spent the last year chasing down a new customer segment just because they could. They kind of got this this opportunity to go after that customer segment. A partner wanted to bring them in on something, but and they kind of like ignored their core business for about a year and going through this uh through my workshop and kind of like learning to talk to customers and like think about customers from this different perspective they're like oh my god we've wasted a year like we're not the right fit for the for this customer segment we don't have the right product for them there's lots of competitive solutions that are far better to help them get the things done that they want to get done but we're super great for this core audience that we started with and we've kind of just ignored and if we just went down and went 10, you know, 10 times deeper there, as opposed to trying to go wider, then we'd have way more results. And like, so seeing them kind of have that aha moment and, and reprioritize and get refocused, like these are the things that just are such great wins. Um, but the thing that I've also learned from doing a lot of this training is that it's not enough to tell people what they should be doing or even to tell them how to do it because we live in the weeds of our own um, prop, like, you know, of our own biases with our company of our own kind of like overthinking it. And so it's really, really valuable to have somebody who um, can come in and kind of like play that guide role who gets to know your company, who understands your customer pains and who can give you a, um, unbiased outside perspective and kind of make you gut check some of the things that you're assuming are true. Um, I found that to be really interesting because I think that, again, coming back to that, um, the metaphor of weight loss or fitness, like I always look at the, um, the Weight Watchers product as this absolutely brilliant uh, product in terms of making behavioral changes possible. And there's kind of like this this saying that you need kind of like four things to make a behavioral change happen. You need to know, you need to have something that makes making behavioral change easier. So it's clear like what you're supposed to do. That's kind of the what piece that can be like training, that can be books, that can be like products, whatever. Um, but then you need to have peer support of people that are going through that behavioral change with you and that understand where you're at. So when things are hard, you have somebody to talk to, but you also need to have the guidance of somebody who's done it and who can kind of like pull you out of your own head. And I've always thought that that's part of the challenge when it comes to people adopting a more customer centric like philosophy as a company is that they're being told how to do it and maybe they're being given tools so that they can do it, but they might not have those other pieces that really allow them to be successful. Yeah, that's uh, whether political capital, soft mm -hmm. skills, interpersonal skills, that stuff is so important to affecting organizational change, of course. We have a great episode on the topic, <laughs> by the way, um, with, with Holly Hester Riley. Um, check that out. But Oh, awesome. Yeah, I think um, in, any, in any line of work, right, if you're seeking to, to make change, that's, that's hard. And do you have any tips for um, baby steps for that or um, how have you seen organizations do that just building those kinds of skills or I think that you need to get like recognize who people are and you have to kind of give them some quick wins and I think one of the reasons why like if you think about that Weight Watchers example it's like you know exactly what number you need to hit and every day you measure your performance and 
I think that um, being able to figure out how to kind of give people those quick wins and what what's good enough for now versus trying to push some kind of like perfect model. It's like, this is realistically what we can do today and that's good enough. And um, trying to remove the barriers that allow them to get those wins faster so that they can kind of get that dopamine hit and go, yeah, we want to do this again. And I find that like every time you get a, um, you know, whether it be a marketer or a product person, when, when they get on the phone with customers and they really get to talk to them, they get that win. The part that's where I think that they get the window to their sales and is in like taking what they're learning and actually getting the rest of their team to buy in or like to make those like individual insights feel like something that they can present to people and it feels more real. And that's part of where they struggle. Yeah, love that. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd.